1: So my name is Rachel Shewer and this is the latest podcast of the Sex, Sex Work and Sexuality special series. And with me, I have Lorna Bracewell, who's come to talk about her book, Why We Lost the Sex Walls. So Lorna, can you tell us a bit about who you are and fill us in on your research, please? Sure.
0: So I'm an assistant professor of political science at Flagler College, which is a small liberal arts college in St. Augustine, Florida, um, where I'm delighted to say it's lovely today. Um, And uh, I study political theory, feminist political thought. And my book is, uh, the way I would describe it is to say it's a kind of revisionist history of the feminist sex wars or the feminist sexuality debates. Of the 1980s and 1990s. Okay,
1: so so why now? Why? Where did you feel that we needed a revision of the of these of these wars?
0: Well, I, I felt like the the story that feminists were telling themselves about these events was, first of all, inaccurate and incomplete, but probably more importantly than that, politically stultifying and unhelpful. Um, so I wanted to revisit the sex wars to orient feminists in a new way to this history that I think will open up a broader vista of political possibilities with regard to sex.
1: Okay. So for people, so for people that aren't as familiar as the sex war wars as we are, can you give us a kind of like an overview of what the sex wars were?
0: Yeah. So, you know, the kind of typical story that gets told about them, I call this the catfight narrative um, in the book. And, you know, it's it's you know, you had kind of sex positive feminists uh, pitted against sex negative feminists or pro-sex feminists pitted against, you know, anti-sex feminists or, you know, kind of feminists who are fun and uh, who like pleasure pitted against, you know, kind of feminists that were dowdy and no fun. Um and didn't like pleasure, you know, kind of, you know, Puritans versus Libertines, or, you know, something like that. And that's the narrative of the sex wars that I just want to explode um, in the book. Um, yeah, but, you know, so kind of figures who may be figured prominently in these debates who who listeners may be familiar with. Um, Catherine McKinnon, uh, the legal scholar and theorist, Andrea Dworkin, the controversial... Uh, writer and activist um, Gail Rubin, um, you know, a very influential and 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 you know, rightly well-respected scholar of of sexuality. Um, uh, Amber Halaba, you know, I've just tried to kind of rattle off some names that maybe people are familiar with. Um, Judith Butler was actually involved in some of these debates as a graduate student. Um, before Judith Butler was Judith Butler, so yeah, a lot of a lot of really prominent, well-known feminists were were engaged in these debates, and those are probably, you know, the kind of central figures: Susan Brownmiller, another one, uh, Robin Morgan. Um, yeah, so it, it, it was really these these debates about sex and sexuality um, really sucked into their vortex. All of the leading feminist voices of the 1970s, 1980s, and 1990s, and then some of the more, you know, those who would go on to become some of the leading feminist voices of even, even today, right?
1: Yeah. Um. In the introduction, you kind of, uh, sort of, like you say, uh, you positioned the, the debate around sex wars around the sort of Me Too uh, campaign of the last couple of years. So can you kind of talk us through that sort of, that Me Too campaign, and how, you know, how it resonated with the the sex wars of the the 70s or 80s and what the resonance was that you saw?
0: Yeah, yeah. So when when Me Too kind of popped off, um, I think that in that moment, you really saw those pernicious political consequences of the catfight narrative history of the sex wars that I'm trying to explode. Because what you have in the Me Too movement is like, you know, an admittedly imperfect, right? But still like serious, global uh effort feminist effort to contest sexual injustice and sexual oppression all right um and again you know there are there are totally legitimate and valid and important and vital critiques of that effort right it was it was you know maybe too too focused on sort of super privileged celebrity white women in america right and it didn't pay enough attention you know to the kind of sexual domination experienced by, you know, non-white people, people in working class jobs, people in other parts of the world, right? So there are like critiques to be made of it. But what you saw um, in response to the Me Too mo- movement um, were some critiques that I think aren't as uh, valid or, or uh, worthy of our attention as feminists. And, and you saw these same critiques being made across this broad swath of the political spectrum, right? So you, you could open the pages of National Review, right? A conservative, you know, outlet, and you could read, you know, people like David French and Mona Charon and, and, you know, these other kind of, you know, conservative pundits um, warning that Me Too was a witch hunt and that it was going to lead to a kind of uh, you know, feminist red scare and um, it was going to uh, you were going to see civil liberties and the presumption of innocence and all these kind of, you know, liberal legal norms just right ridden roughshod over by, you know, this this feminist movement run amok. And then you could also see ostensibly kind of progressive, culturally left, uh, even feminist, right, people like Margaret Atwood. Catherine Deneuve, right, they were, they were kind of making public statements saying like exactly the same thing that, you know, Margaret Atwood likened the Me Too movement to the Casa Nostra, right, which says, uh, you know, was kind of, you know, like you could understand why that, uh, you know, kind of that institution and and that set of structures for exacting retribution evolved, but they've clearly, you know, uh, jumped the, jumped the shark. So, yeah, like, um, I kind of saw that weird convergence of feminist progressives and like anti-feminist conservatives all rallying together to say, whoa, Me Too movement, settle down. Let's not forget about, you know, these important liberal legal norms, um, limited government, individual rights, the rule of law, freedom of speech, right? Like... um, they were all sort of trying to discipline this this feminist effort to contest sexual oppression using the same conceptual and theoretical tools. And that to me, that that convergence to understand it, to see it and to understand it, you have to go back to the feminist sex wars and and you have to go back to that catfight narrative. Um, because the moral that I think the catfight narrative of the sex wars kind of secretes is, feminists should be wary of too robustly contesting sexual oppression and sexual injustice. Um, when feminists really try to do this um, in a kind of really uh, a politically radical way, feminists get into trouble and, you know, they become sex negative and they become anti-sex and they become no fun and they, and they lose. Right. So, um, and, and I, I think that's the moral of, of the catfight narrative, but I don't think that is actually the lesson that feminists should take away from the history of the sex wars. So I go back to to try to re-narrate that history, to try to tease out what I think are the valuable political lessons and morals to, to derive from that history. And then I, I hope that that will orient feminists in a new direction so that we can see um, uh, a, a, a real global kind of mass mediated effort to contest sexual domination and not not run away from our shadow right and, and, and not not react with um, such such ambivalence to it.
1: Yeah, I, I mean to be honest the impression I got when I, when I was reading the book and I've like literally just finished reading the book was uh, uh, almost like a sort of like an investigation after a fight. So we've gone back to the scene of the fight. And for for people who aren't familiar, the the book is centred around the pornography wars of the the 70s and the 80s. Um, And what the book does is actually really cleverly go back to the scene of the crime, as it were, to see you know the other stories the other actors on in the um, in the arena at the time so can you give us a kind of overview of the porn wars of the 70s and 80s because they are so intrinsic and so important to to current debates around sexuality that I don't you know I think it's really important that people that readers get a really good grasp of what a seminal occurrence uh the you know the porn wars war, were so if you can give uh, readers an overview of how your book explores porn wars. yeah
0: yeah, so so first of all, I always like to say the sex wars were about more than porn. Porn was the I think headlining issue um, uh, that that divided anti pornography feminists from sex radical feminists. But they they disagreed about a whole range of issues pertaining to sex and sexuality. Pornography was one of them, one among many. Um, but yeah, so you know, like I just said, the the kind of two main parties um, on the. Feminist side of the line, if you will, are anti-pornography feminists who um, saw pornography as a, a kind of tool to indoctrinate people into like a patriarchal, masculinist political ideology that had pernicious consequences for for women um, and and for men. Importantly, I think for for thinkers like Dworkin and McKinnon as well. Um, And then, you know, you had so that was kind of one feminist effort to think politically about pornography and to think about the political implications of pornography that happened during the sex wars. And then you had another kind of group of of feminists who I call sex radical feminists, Um, and they were also interested in thinking politically about pornography and and thinking about the political implications of pornography. But for them, they saw pornography as a kind of potential avenue of sexual liberation and a kind of tool that could be used by feminists to contest the, um, you know, kind of anti-sex, sex-negative, sex-phobic tendencies of patriarchal culture. Um, So what I argue is like, There's a lot, obviously, we could talk a lot about the differences between these two feminist approaches to thinking politically about pornography. But what they share in common is that they are feminist approaches to to thinking about the political implications of pornography, because that's what feminists were trying to do at this time. And it was really revolutionary, right? Um, Because it was not the custom of kind of non-feminist mainstream political society to think at all politically about pornography. In fact, pornography was sort of framed by, um, you know, kind of mainstream civil libertarian discourse going back to the 19th century as like apolitical, as harmless, apolitical, private, right? And it was on these grounds that civil libertarians, again, going back to the 19th century, um, argued against conservative efforts to regulate sexually explicit, speech as obscenity right because what they were saying is like look um you know here we are in the united states of america where we have kind of robust protections for free speech and we have a kind of uh, deeply held commitment to limited government pornography is a purely private matter it's a thing that people do in private it has no public implications or political implications and therefore Just like we don't meddle in people's kind of religious practices or idiosyncratic, whatever, you know, private individual practices, we should just leave them alone with their porn, right? And so what feminists were trying to do in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s, I think, was really contest that kind of civil libertarian framing of pornography as apolitical, private, Um, both sex radical feminists and anti-pornography feminists, Saw pornography as deeply political, um, and they were trying to to think that through, right? Mm. Um, and and think, th- kind of think about how feminists should therefore orient themselves to to pornography once it's reframed as having vast political import.
1: Yeah, and I mean it's quite interesting as well because uh, you know obviously this discussion around pornography has been a sort of a public. In the public direct domain as opposed to the private domain. I it kind of echoes the the, uh, the feminist debates of the previous century. Or almost a hundred years beforehand, we'd had these massive, like sort of um, uh, like the evolution, at least in the global northwest, of feminism around the issue of prostitution. You know, so a hundred years later, you know, we've moved on from the debate ar- around prostitution to a political debate around pornography and I, I always see this as, as a kind of a, you know literally the second wave you know the second wave the first wave is, is is prostitution the second wave is pornography but um you describe a conference that was really seminal to the the debates that the, the sort of feminist you know because they did at some time become very warlike didn't they the, the feminist wars Oh, at yeah, the- I, don't, I don't mean to
0: minimize that at all. I mean, relationships were destroyed. Like, yeah,
1: I mean, it, it got ugly. Yeah. I mean, it was, <laughs> yeah, it was a catfight. It really was. A cat fight. So can you describe the Barnard Conference and why you see it as a significant event for feminism? Well, so this is like
0: the centerpiece of the catfight narrative, right? Um, for most people, the, the sex wars are the Barnard. Conference on sexuality. Yeah, so this was a you know a a meeting of the the Barnard scholar and the feminist conference, which you know happens every year, and the theme was the kind of politics of of sexuality, and the conference organizers. Um, and you can go read the edited volume that grew out of this conference, "Pleasure and Danger," edited by Carol Vance. It's excellent, full of wonderful, pathbreaking, you know, foundational. Um, Feminist sexual theory and and thought, um, but you know, the conference organizers say they're, they're they're pretty upfront with this that one of the main objectives of the conference was to sort of offer an alternative feminist analysis of the politics of sexuality to counter that being offered by the anti pornography feminist movement. Um, and at this time, you know, again, it can be it can be easy to forget, or or if you weren't alive during that time, to kind of not even know that. Um, you know the anti-pornography feminist movement, like they were on the Phil Donahue show, like they were like pretty mainstream. They were getting you know, and and really fem- feminism, you know, in in the seventies and eighties, it was it was sort of in the public discourse, um, mainstream public discourse, in a way that um, you know maybe it can be hard to to appreciate today. But yeah, so the the anti-pornography feminists were really having a moment. Um, they were becoming a kind of national. Movement founding national organizations with a kind of national scope. Women against pornography. Um, they were finding, you know, sponsors and sympathetic uh, ears amongst powerful, influential people in politics. Right. The um, in New York, the city gave them kind of rent-free uh, office space in the Times Square. You know, which at the time was kind of like a red light district. And so the city of New York thought. Um, yeah, these these anti pornography feminists all help us clean up the, you know, this neighborhood or whatever. So anyway, you know, they were having their moment, and and the organizers of the Barnard conference um, wanted to kind of represent uh, alternative feminist sexual politics through this conference, and they actually, um, you know, kind of informally, unofficially, and this is where it all gets very personal and ugly. You know, we're sort of like refusing um, to have. Kind of anti pornography feminists who maybe wanted to be involved in the conference they were like not accepting their abstracts or I I don't know right Um, they were it was the idea was like this is not the space for that this is a space for the articulation of something different Um, and so what you ended up having was on the day of the conference uh, anti pornography feminists staging a demonstration outside of the gates of Barnard College and they picketed the conference and they were passing out a leaflet you know, kind of, you know, launching, you know, kind of very personal attacks on the presenters and talking about how unfeminist they are and, um, you know, making making some pretty, uh, pretty serious egregious allegations against some of the conference organizers and presenters. So it was ugly. Um, and that, so that clash between anti-pornography feminists and what I like to call anti-anti-pornography feminists, because at this time they hadn't, they hadn't really... Fully articulated their alternative. They were there to kind of formulate it, right? Um, but that that becomes the kind of uh, I don't know. I don't know how to say this word. synecdoche. is that how you pronounce that word? Uh, for the sex wars, right? The sex wars are the Barnard Conference. The Barnard Conference are the sex or this is the sex wars. Um, and what I try to do in the book is decenter, I guess that conflict as dramatic as it was, um, and show that, yeah, that was a debate that happened, uh, you know, Carol Vance and, uh, you know, Andrea Dworkin or whatever were sort of at each other's throats over this whole Barnard conference kerfuffle. Um, but there were lots of other debates that these feminists were having with lots of other people at the time. And what i am kind of most interested in, as I was talking about earlier are like, The ways in which these feminists on all sides of the sex wars debates were trying to contest this much older, um, more mainstream kind of liberal sexual politics, um, which saw pornography and sex as apolitical, personal, and private and harmless. Um, So I I try to, you know, I, I write at length about kind of other academic conferences where scholars representing other uh, positions on the spectrum of sexual politics were at loggerheads, right, and sparks flew. Um, so, you know, I talk about a kind of clash between Alan Dershowitz, right, uh, and Andrea Dworkin. Um, I think it was now I forget it's at Harvard or I forget where it happened. Now um, in the in the eighties, right, and, and Dworkin ends up flipping Alan Dershowitz the bird. Um, <laughs> And you know Alan Dershowitz, of course, he had represented Harry Reims, who was the star of Deep Throat. He was sort of like he is today; he's like a TV lawyer who loves to, um, you know, represent these disreputable um, clients who, who nobody likes. And
1: yeah, and this um, is kind of this is kind of really interesting as well because I got the you know from this description, it becomes really uh, necessary to to kind of like look past the cat fight, doesn't it? Because what I was getting all the way through the reading of this book was that, uh, okay, so, you know, in the 1860s, we've got this this debate, this feminist debate about, about prostitution being nothing other than exploitative, blah, 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 and that debate is not challenged. Yeah, that debate is, is just... Well... I-
0: I mean, you had you had people like Victoria Woodhull who were not yeah. talking about prostitution that way at all, right? Yeah, but so. I mean the,
1: the the narrative, the public narrative. Oh, right, right, challenge yeah. it, yeah. So, but what you've got here is with the with the porn wars, with the the sort of like the the later wars around porn, is that you've got a mainstream narrative. That is also that is challenged in the public space. I mean, you know, let me let me clarify the the, uh, the you know the the 1860s was definitely a political hotbed when it came to debates around prostitution. But the narratives were very much owned by the people who were, you know, seeking to to um, uh, criminalize prostitution. And you know, so a hundred years down the line, almost or just over a hundred years down the line, you've got another sort of similar debate, but this time it's it's evolved into this catfight and what your book really cleverly does is actually you know it almost says hang on let's stop here let's have a look what else is going on around this central catfight let's move the catfight out of the way and see what other debates are going on and um and I I just wondered why you why you sort of like what made you realize that it was really important to do this to move the catfight out of the center focus I, that's a, that's a good question <laughs> I, don't,
0: I don't that i don't really know um I try to like think way back to because this the spaghetti is my dissertation of course so yeah. um i don't know i mean i just had an intuition i guess that there was probably more going on than that facile you know nothing nothing in the past is that straightforward there yeah. are no heroes and villains or good guys and bad guys or good gals and bad gals in this case um and I I guess I also maybe have a kind of presumption that, like, we should take feminists seriously. Like, we should take feminist efforts to contest sexual oppression seriously. And I I felt like there was a real dismissal of, you know, I mean, take a figure like Andrea Dworkin. I mean, she's like persona non grata. I mean, now she's having a little bit of a moment, um, a little bit of a rehabilitation. And I, I like to think that I'm a small part of that. But um you know, and I, I've just, that always struck me as a suspect, right? Um, because of course we know, like, <laughs> you know, I mean, it, feminists as far back as I can remember are diminished and minimized and dismissed as, you know, irrational, too much. Um, and so I, I guess I kind of sensed that happening with regard to these prominent figures in the sex wars, And that just sort of like, got my little feminist in, kind of vibrating. And I was like, there's probably more to that. Um, I also, you know, I had kind of formative experiences. I'm 37. So when I was first reading feminist political theory as an undergraduate, I took like a, a contemporary political theory course. And, you know, we had like the two weeks on feminism or whatever that you get in a course like that. And we read Catherine McKinnon's Toward a Feminist Theory of the State. So that was probably like the first work of feminist political theory that I really seriously read. And, you know, of course, there were parts of it that I balked at or that made me feel a little uneasy or that maybe I even at 18, 19 disagreed with. But it struck me as really intellectually serious. Um, And then to then to encounter this catfight narrative, you know, where again, you know, figures like McKinnon and Dworkin were just, they were just bad guys. I'm like, <laughs> you know, they're, they're bad guys who wrote some, some pretty brilliant, incisive books, right? <laughs> um, so I, I guess that was kind of what motivated me is just that general suspicion that I think all, all feminists should have. When you, hear, when you hear women who are trying to do seriously radical political work, just diminished and minimized and dismissed. There's 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 more to to unpack there. Yeah. Um. Then I'll 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 say one more thing. I think this is also a, a reason that I had my initial hunch or intuition to go back. Um. As a graduate student, I I was trained uh in a kind of particular uh, method, I guess, in the history of political thought, um, the Cambridge School approach and you know, I, without making this podcast about that, um, you know, I will say that like one of the, the kind of main injunctions of this kind of Cambridge School approach to the study of the history of political thought is like, read everything. You don't just read Hobbes, you read around Hobbes, you read all the people Hobbes was in, contact with. You read everything you can to learn as much as you can about kind of the, the political context in which, you know, Thomas Hobbes was intervening or whatever. So I think that some of that kind of uh, Cambridge School methodological stuff that I had beat into me as a graduate student probably informed my approach to a study of the aspect of the history of political thought that admittedly Cambridge school scholars are not known for paying much attention to 20th century feminism. But I think that I kind of brought that sensibility is it's like, I got to read it all, mm. you know, um, and that th- I have a whole, you know, 70 page chapter in the book, which is about black and third world feminist contributions to the sex wars. The only reason that chapter exists is because of my kind of, you know, Cambridge school sensibilities, right, where it's like, you got to go read it all. And it's like, oh, well, holy smokes. Look at all these black and third world feminists who were intervening in the sex wars and who are totally not even uh, included in that catfight fight narrative at all, right? Um, and, you know, in fact, I think I quote like a moment at a conference. This was years later, I think, in the in the two thousands, where Gail Rubin was asked by a member of the audience, like, "Hey, these sex wars debates were happening around the same time that you know all these really this great." Uh, efflorescence of Black feminist thought was happening, what's the relationship between those things? And Gail Rubin's like, no, there's not really any relationship. That was a kind of different thing. It's like, no, like there, there is a relationship. These, you know, leading Black feminists, uh, you know, uh, leading Chicana feminists, uh, you know, Cherry Baraga, uh, Audre Lorde, Patricia Hill Collins, like they're all engaging in these debates. Now, of course, the position they articulate is not easily caricatured as like pro-sex or anti-sex or sex negative or sex positive. So they kind of don't fit the Gap Fight narrative, but you know, the, they were contributors to these debates as well. And yeah, so anyway, I'll, I'll, I'll shut up now. But that, that was kind of like, those were my motivations for going yes. back. That, yeah.
1: Because, because what really, really resonated with me, and for some reason when I read this book, right, and I've only just recently read it, I had a, an, an image of a barn fight with these two two opposing teams, but all the way around this fight, you've got these kind of diaphanous figures who are sort of like on neither side, who are sort of, um you know, sort of there, who are making contributions and that have now been totally forgotten in the discussion about. And that I think is what this book really does because it's sort of like, it gives um, a perspective of what how things would look now on the political field if the the sex wars had not been binaried, you know but also as well what became really relevant to me, and I think we don't really talk about this enough in the in the context of sex sex work, but the sex work narrative almost becomes colonized hmm. you know and and this is the this is the impression that i that I get from from reading what you've written that it's been colonized by and to opposing not all white but predominantly white um, uh, sort of academics who mm. have been fighting on the behalf of a very marginalized group yeah sex workers and <clears throat> but what's noticeable is one the lack of narratives from central marginals but two who ends up you know winning inverted comments, and you know that Cambridge thing about you know sort of like see who, who win, wins it's like Actually, when you, when you look at the, the fallout from the, the sex wars, who's actually won in terms of power? Both of these, both ends of the spectrum have benefited hugely. And the the, the 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 voices of the marginalized are once again not heard at all. And I just keep coming back to Spivak. Every time I read something like this, I get Spivak, that kind of um the silencing of the narrative, the silencing of the subaltern. And that's what I was kind of driving at with you just now. It's like, you know, what why why, do you think it's so important to, to kind of, like, get past the catfight? And as I was reading your book, I'm like, I know why it's important to get past the catfight because actually what you've got are the two loudest girls in the school having a fight and everyone else is being ignored, you know? Um, And it's really interesting to see where we go, you know, what what's happened, like... 30 years down the right road where those those political players now are and it seems really interesting that you've got that you know and we'll talk about it in a, in a few minutes about the debates around carceral feminism on one side and the trafficking debate so it's almost like after this fight these two opposing teams were shooting off in opposite directions seemingly but have come very close to each other once again so I am um, so I was really interested in how much time you spend talking about the term uh, liberal and what does it mean (laughs) for you and how is it explained in the context of this book yeah so
0: oh it's funny I have a I have a good friend. We went. We went to graduate school together. Um, she wised up after she got her PhD. She got like a, a real job and now makes all kinds of grown up person money and does does serious things. But um, so she didn't. She didn't stay in academia. But we're st- we're still great friends. And um, she's a she's a feminist historian. And uh, you know, I'm of course a, a feminist political theorist. And this is like, she just texted me. She's reading my book because like I said, she's like the best friend. And she's like. I still don't understand what you mean by liberal. <laughs> and, um, yeah, so um, I when I talk about liberalism in the book um, and how what started as two kind of interesting, important, critical feminist engagements with liberalism become, by the Sex War's End, sort of creatures of, of liberalism itself or adjuncts of, of liberalism what I, what I mean is like liberalism as a political philosophy or as a political theory or a set of political ideas. So, you know, I mean, like the liberalism of John Stuart Mill in On Liberty, or I mean, um, you know, the, the liberalism that Marx is critical of in, on the Jewish question, or, um, you know, so I think I kind of sum it up as kind of core liberal beliefs are you know a, a commitment to a distinction between the public and the private um, and the belief that the private whatever is included in that sphere is kind of sacrosanct and uh, it is you know immoral for government to kind of trespass into that private zone and attempt to regulate individual conduct in that sphere of the private that that violates this kind of normative commitment to limited government that that is also a characteristic belief of of liberalism um yeah so so that's that's what i mean by liberalism and now when it's confusing like for my friend you know who i mentioned who's a feminist historian because like when historians of 20th century feminism talk about like liberal feminism um it's never actually entirely clear to me what they mean but it seems like they mean like mainstream right so like Betty Friedan, because she wrote like a popular book and started a kind of mainstream lobbying group to engage in politics in a kind of very conventional way, like Betty Friedan becomes the kind of poster child for liberal feminism. Um, whereas, you know, uh, I'm trying to think of an example of a radical feminist. You know, Shulamith Firestone. Um, you know, one of the founders of Red Stockings in New York, who they were doing like zap actions to disrupt uh, committee meetings of the New York state legislature and stuff. And uh, they were doing consciousness raising and they were kind of doing unconventional political things. So they get, they get called like radical. So it's like that, that dichotomy between like the liberal being like the mainstream and like radical and like, you know, that's, that's important. And that's helpful to that distinction is meaningful. But, you know, for me, as, as a political theorist, liberalism means something much more specific than just mainstream conventional.
1: Yeah, yeah. Because I was, I was also thinking as well, like, once you were talking about, you know, the term liberal is one thing, but the term neoliberal, you know, and how liberal feminism has kind of, like, slowly kind of sleptwalked, into bed with the criminal justice system <laughs> under the under the pretense of like, you know, protecting women's rights. They call they they, you know, especially around the debates around things like trafficking and stuff like that. They very much, you know, fall fall back on those car serial kind of fallbacks that really challenge notions of liberalism. You know? Yeah, well and, and
0: what I want to argue in in the conclusion of the book is actually that uh, carceral feminism is a kind of creature of or extension of this liberal colonization of feminism or whatever. Um, You know, I want to argue that there's a lot of people when they talk about carceral feminism, they want to blame it on sort of feminist dalliances with conservative movements. And and there's something to that. Um, But I also think that it is it is feminist concession to that that liberal political vision that I was just articulating of individual rights and limited government and the public and the private. I, I think that that as feminists, feminism becomes more beholden to that very emaciated liberal vision of politics, that feminism becomes increasingly carceral. And here's why I, I think that um, those... That kind of core set of liberal beliefs was not designed to address the political phenomenon or the forms of oppression and injustice that feminism is deeply interested in addressing. Um, So you have a kind of set of tools um, that was never intended to rectify or, or deal with or address in any way sexual oppression and injustice. Um, right because sex is private sex is a matter of personal choice um, and the government has no business butting itself into what goes on in people's private bedrooms that's the kind of liberal take so liberalism has always been horribly suited to dealing with the stuff that feminists want to deal with right um, and but the one way that liberalism can kind of deal with that sphere right is is to 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 frame something that happens there as a crime. Yeah. Because the liberal state, one of its, you know, while remaining uh, faithful to the the core liberal principles, you know, of of limited government, it it can punish crime. Um, In fact, that's kind of its most important central function for liberals is to enforce the natural rights of individuals. So when people break the rules um, and violate the law of nature and, infringe on other people's rights, the state swoops in and it punishes those bad actors. Um, So what feminists who operate within that theoretical ambit of liberalism have to do is they have to frame the thing that they want the liberal state to address as a crime. And then they have to allow the liberal state to kind of address it through its criminal justice capacities. Um, And so that's why you get, you know, feminist efforts to combat rape and sexual assault and contest rape culture by begging police and law enforcement to punish rapists more aggressively and more vigorously right and not to say that's not important but that is a really narrow attenuated feminist vision of how to address rape culture right to think that we can you know arrest and prosecute and incarcerate our way out of rape culture um, is insane yeah, uh,
1: I'll just say use, that. Right? <laughs> you use the slut walk analogy really cleverly in this context.
0: Yeah, that, I I think that that's what you saw like in the earliest kind of instantiations of the slut walk movement was this really carceral feminist approach, right? Because what initiated the slut walk movement in Toronto, Canada, I forget what year it was now a long a long time ago now, like two thousand fifteen or something like that. Um, maybe maybe even before. I um. But what 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 initiated it was like a a comment, like a super rapey comment that a cop made on a college campus in Toronto. Um, He was there to give some sort of talk about, you know, here's what we can do to prevent sexual assault on campus. And what he said was like, well, ladies, you just have to stop dressing like sluts and then then you won't get raped. Um, And of course, you know, the students in the audience of that were, of course, rightfully offended and, and scandalized by that and decided to organize a demonstration to kind of call this this guy out. Um, but what what they what they kind of do, and if you look at the messaging um, that the activists were putting out around this slow walk, is they like march to the headquarters of the Toronto police. And, you know, they're they're kind of figuring themselves as supplicants at the the kind of feed of the carceral state uh, as citizens who are entitled to the benevolent protection of the police. They're just as entitled, even if they dress like sluts, they are just as entitled to the protections um, of, of the, the police and the criminal justice system as any other citizen, right? Um, which does not contest the carceral power of the state at all. It does not highlight the obvious Uh, affinities between, you know, particularly the comments that that were made by a police officer, right? Like So the kind of complicity of the police in perpetrating rape culture, right? In fact, it figures the police as the kind of solution to the problem of rape, when in fact the, the incident that triggered it, I think, highlighted the role that police and the carceral state play in perpetrated rape culture so
1: yeah and i think yeah. that's a really it's a really important discussion for us to be having as feminists at this point where in in london a woman's just been murdered by a yes you know yeah. it's really important but also as well it's a really what i really loved about this book right what i really loved is because it touched into my own work everyone who's listened to even two minutes of my podcast know that, knows that i study Webcoming. yeah and i had to really take a step back From using a feminist framework to engage with with webcoming because of the uh, the obvious blind spots in feminism in reference to the part that it holds within the neoliberal framework. So, you know, I was really struck by the fact that, you know, in the context of webcoming, you've got you know millions of women employed by you know these these largely male in fact all male owned institutions, yeah, all of which goes through the banking system. but there's been no virtually no sort of like uh, attempt to challenge the working conditions that women are, are working in, you know and there was a real blind spot. and I think as feminist and I rate myself to be a feminist, I would consider myself like, you know, a third world feminist because of my marginalisation. I come from an Irish travelling background, I come from a criminal background, I come from a sex working background, you know, I'm quite envious, even I'm envious of the amount of marginalisation I possess, you know, it's awesome, thank you. but, you know, we need to look at where we stand in the field. And that's what I really loved about this book, because it was an opportunity to go and investigate a cold case and see who else was there at the time. And, <laughs> but what I think you do really care, cleverly is like you offer um, uh, an example, you, you offer an alternative of how it could have been if we'd have heard the other voices that were speaking so articulately at the time, but got drowned out by the catfight,
0: And I, yeah, think- I, well, I'm, I'm so glad to hear that comes through. Yeah. Um, and yeah, because, you know, the kind of story that I tell is that the sex wars start as a feminist effort to contest this, you know, post-war liberal sexual politics, but, through a series of unfortunate events, (laughs) feminists end up actually kind of making alliances and, and, and joining up with, um, you know, some of these kind of more mainstream liberal actors and really sacrifice a lot of the, the radicalism and the critical edge of what they started with um, in exchange for, you know, these more short-term gains or whatever. Um, And, There were voices all throughout, right, um, that were cautioning sex radical feminists and anti-pornography feminists against this kind of strategy of, you know, liberal alliance or whatever. Um, And those feminists were were largely Black and third world feminists. Um, And the reason that they were so wary of uh, an anti-pornography feminism that joins league with civil libertarians and sort of decides to narrow it, to trim its sails and to focus maybe only on violent pornography, which could be characterized as obscene or something like that. Um, The reason Black and third world feminists were kind of wary of feminists compromising their positions to conform to, say, established liberal constitutional jurisprudence um, it's because they knew that that would not address their concerns vis-a-vis pornography, right? Um, which you know they they saw pornography. You know, I'm thinking of people like uh, Alice Walker here. Um, the the political harm of pornography for a black anti-pornography feminist like Alice Walker wasn't just that it sexually objectified women; it was that it perpetrated racist hierarchy. And subverted the possibility for kind of political coalition between Black women and Black men. It mm. kind of drove a wedge that disrupted uh, racial solidarity between the genders, which was a huge setback, as Alice Walker saw it, for the kind of politics of Black liberation. So, like, that was her concern about pornography. That was the, the political concern that, that animated and motivated her anti-pornography feminism. And she could see that this kind of attenuated uh, anti-pornography liberalism, you know, being embraced by people like Elena Kagan or people like Cass Sunstein, she could kind of see that wasn't going to cut the mustard. That wasn't going to address, you know, so why, why make that compromise? Um, and, and then you also see A a figure like Cherry Moraga at the Barnard Conference itself, uh, cautioning sex radical feminists against trimming their sails and attenuating their vision and diluting it to just a sort of celebration of deviance, as she calls it, and a kind of, uh, you know, um, uh, deeply liberal individualist uh, vindication of marginalized sexual identity. Uh like Maraga's, like, again, like given her experience and her position as a Chicana lesbian, she was like, look, like just uncritically celebrating my deviant sexual identity, that is not going to address the forms of sexual oppression that I am most concerned about. And not only is it not going to be a good tool for me to use to address these forms of sexual oppression, it's going to alienate me from, you know, the the women back in Sonora, as she puts it, who I kind of understand as a vital part of my community and who I'm trying to liberate, right? So, yeah, you had had Black and third world feminists really presciently seeing the the direction that all this was going and seeing the kind of liberal hegemony that was reasserting itself and diluting whatever radical political project these feminists had started at the beginning of the sex wars. And they were, you know, you know, kind of standing athwart history yelling, stop, right? But yeah. nobody... Nobody listened to them. Um, no. and, it's, and it's it's really unfortunate.
1: <laughs> it's really it's yeah, it's especially unfortunate when you think about like in terms of the because I, I noticed that you sidestepped the discussion of the debate around trafficking. And I'm grateful to you for that, because you know, enough trees have been sacrificed in that debate. Okay, but you can't help but notice how the um the the debates around trafficking, the moral panic around trafficking has been so useful. In also silencing those third world black feminists, because actually what it does is it casts third world black feminists into the role of potential victim to be rescued by these, you know, these, these predominantly white feminists. Yeah. Right? Right. So we get we go back to that kind of um that debate yeah. that Augustine or, and well, Campardo sort yeah, of. Yeah, no, and I think it's I
0: think it's important, right? Yeah, they they can be cast in that role as victim in need of salvation from their white saviors, right? Or the kind of alternative role that i think uh that maybe the like kind of pro-sex sex positive uh yeah. camp would cast for them is like modern liberated woman embracing her sexuality yeah. right yeah. which like doesn't doesn't suit them either right uh, <laughs> so no 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 because
1: yeah. no, sex work <laughs> even though i struggle with the phrase sex work because it uh, implies way too much labor for my liking sex work is work yeah. yeah. Pe- people aren't always. It happens under deeply exploitative conditions. Exactly. People yeah, aren't yeah. always making pornography as a way of saying, look, here I am, you know, look at me, you know, sometimes. Yeah, we, we
0: didn't all like leave. I don't know. There was some I, I don't even I won't even bring it up. I shouldn't even bring it up. But, you know, we don't all leave our kind of Ivy League education to go yeah.
1: experience,
0: you know, and explore this universe of sexual possibility like that's not everybody's story yeah right
1: yeah (laughs) and i mean i just think the, the 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 trafficking debate has been it's been so clever in so many ways it's given so much power to both sides of the cat fight yeah but at the same time it's almost um it hasn't silenced the, the the black and third world feminists, but it's kind of like it's siloed their voices. And I and it made me think about the works of people like um, of Kempardo and um, Augustine, and you know, sort of bringing that sort of that, that debate back into the the table. You know, breaking up the binary. You know, but also as well, when I was reading this and you touch on carceral feminism, and I was imagining you on my bookshelf. Yeah. And I'm imagining where you sit on my bookshelf. And there are elements here around the whole Bernstein debate around carceral feminism and how feminism really needs to look at where it's at at the moment in terms of debates around, you know, sort of um, the sexual exploitation of women, where it really sits on that, on that spectrum. And I just thought it was, such a, it was such an important thing to go back to such a seminal event. As as the the war over pornography in in the eighties, because you know it's almost like actually you know what if we could have gone back and actually heard these voices, we may be in a very very different place now. You mm-hmm. know, we may not be sort of countersigning everything that neoliberalism throws at us because it gives us uh, gives us some, you know, sort of appearance of, of liberalism. You know, and yeah. that uh, that that was the really important um, contribution that you're. Your... Well, good. I mean that that's my goal. I want to.
0: I want to open up new alternative vistas.
1: Yeah, like,
0: you know, yeah. Uh, for for feminists to think afresh, right? Um, about how how we ought to engage in the politics of sexuality and contest, you know, structures of sexual domination. Like, I want feminists to do that work, yeah. and not feel constrained by some anxiety that they will be cast as illiberal or, um, insufficiently kind of pro-sex, right? Yeah. Um, like, just abandon all that bag like I, I want us to all abandon all that baggage that we have from the sex wars and this distorted catfight narrative and just like go do feminism yeah.
1: <laughs> I mean for me me personally like when I did my own research it was almost like actually you know what I'm going to put some feminism towards to one side here and I'm going to go I'm going to use an ultra realist framework and just actually mm. go and see what's out there I'm not going to go in with any of the the the, the, the existing arguments I'm going to go back do some ethnography and see mm. what goes on You know, that -hmm. was, was, you know, because I couldn't trust the debates anymore. The debates were so entrenched that they needed to be moved forward. So you describe the sex wars as a sort of launch pad for legal and political ambitions for various feminist viewpoints. Um, Can you talk us through how your book discusses this? I I don't, I'm not sure I understand the question. So, I mean, you know, quite a thing, quite a lot of things happened from the cat fight, didn't they? There were like, you know, there's two trajectories from the cat fight. You've got the, um, you've got the the sort of like the more radical feminists, you've got the more liberal feminists. Can you, can you sort of like tell us how you feel that the sex wars, you know, the porn wars, like sort of ignited those, those different trajectories?
0: um I again I'm still I'm still not sure I understand
1: um Um, okay so do you mean like for individuals or what oh just the movement I mean you know sort of like where you know where are those where are those sort of like two um sort of like binary oppositional parties now oh okay yeah yeah Yeah. well so
0: um I think a legacy of anti-pornography feminism for example um that you that you see today well, first of all, there, there are still feminists who are critical of pornography, and mm-hmm. right, Gail Dines. Um, now, what they have in common with the kind of OG anti-pornography feminists—that's uh, that's open. That's an open question. I see, um, you know, kind of contemporary anti-pornography feminists like Gail Dines as really deeply sexually conservative in a way that just wasn't true of, you know, say Andrea Dworkin. Um, Gail Dyant, you know, you read her work and she's really, she's really concerned with how pornography is kind of distorting what she takes to be a kind of natural sexual drive, or, you know, it's kind of perverting, uh, kind of, and, you know, that's just, that wasn't, that wasn't Andrea Dworkin's concern. You know, that wasn't the concern that animated the original anti-pornography feminist at all. I mean, they thought, so first of all they were very suspicious of this claim that there is some kind of natural sexual drive or you know they 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 were kind of thoroughly social constructionists in that way right um and they they weren't all that worried that about the poor young adolescent boys who were being exposed to pornography at such a young age and then therefore losing all interest in normal, natural, healthy sexual relationships with women, like which Gail Dines talks a lot about that. Right. Um, so, but all that to say there is like, there are contemporary feminists who are actively campaigning, um, against pornography and, Uh you know, they, they understand themselves at least, as being a kind of continuation and extension of the anti-pornography feminist movement that, that started in the 70s. Um, so that's a thing. Um, I think that there are also, like just most people, right, um, today are very open to critiques of pornography, but also other media and forms of communication as being implicated in the perpetuation of like racist and sexist Narratives, right? I think like everybody basically thinks that. Like, you're not going to find anybody who's going to say, there's no sexism in porn, right? I mean, everybody thinks there's sexism in porn. Everybody thinks there's racism in porn. Um, Everybody thinks about all sorts of representation and media in critical ways. Um, That was not true, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. 30 or 40 years ago. Um, So I think that that kind of core element of anti pornography. Feminism has really become a commonplace, certain certainty that is widely assented to, at least you know by, quote unquote, progressive people. Um,
1: yeah, I mean it's quite interesting, isn't it, when they lost they lost the um, the stronghold of objectification. Because, you know, in a society where, like, literally we objectify everyone, like our whole life is, like, geared around the objectification, you lose that basis, that kind of, like, radical feminist basis on Kant and, the, the, you know, the the kind of dehumanising by objectification. You know, you lose that, don't you, where everyone objectifies. And, you know, it's, it's really interesting as well. And I wonder why, um, like, sometimes whether this is why we don't have these, like, sort of fem- like radical feminist debates around... Um, around because webcomers because webcams, when they perform they perform to their own image mm. so maybe performing for an audience but you're actually performing to yourself right and that right. changes that that whole kind of that debate around and I I really liked how your book talked about that about how sort of like you know a few years down the line and you've got thinkers like now Nussbaum going back and saying, actually you know objectification can be quite lovely if it's done mutually respectfully. mm mm-hmm. But I also, as well, I wonder if, like, it's not that we lost the porn wars, but we wandered off because something else more interesting was happening. <laughs> <laughs> it's because, you know, like, because what I see in this in this debate, and and a bit like the barn fight where you have these ephemeral sort of women of colour sort of, like, you know, sort of, like, contributing to the conversation but not being heard or not being their voices, not being amplified, the same way I get the, well what's you know sort of like the, this fight for power and you know the the way that the sort of trafficking debate offered so much more political power that the the, the shift goes from the debate around pornography to the debate around you know around um, sort of, uh, sort of uh, trafficking and migration and all the other things that that comes with that debate and I wondered if we lost the, the sex wars as much as we lost interest in the sex wars. Yeah,
0: um, I don't know. I mean, I think that interest has remained. The, the, my, my take is like, interest has remained. It's just um, the the parameters of what it was possible to say about those subjects that remained of interest mm-hmm. just shrunk. Yeah. Um, definitely. Definitely. And uh, yeah, so, so, you know, maybe the folks who, had they been around in a kind of prior generation, would have been radicalized around their concern for sexual oppression, now get conscripted into kind of deeply carceral or um, you know, kind of weirdly, oddly, socially conservative forms of politics because there there is no uh, radical political movement addressing oh. these things.
1: No, we've all been like absorbed into the uh, absorbed into the middle ground. And you know, as someone who, who before I read this book, you know, was really not a fan of Dawkins. You know, what her her sort of insight around like race and porn really warmed my heart towards her, because the point that you make about the sort of like these these folk demons, these folk devils, is really important that we challenge this. As as feminists, we we need to challenge this, you know. As, yeah, I'll I'll
0: encourage any any Dworkin skeptics out there, right? Read my book, um, but also there's a there's a new collection of her writings, um, edited by Joanna Fateman, I think, uh, called Last Last Night at Hot Slit, and it's a great affordable short collection of you know some some of Dworkin's most I think important writings. And th- the goal of it, the editors are pretty upfront about this, is to sort of re- rehabilitate Dworkin um, and to, to to invite us to appreciate her beyond the, you know, I mean, deeply sexist caricatures, right? Yeah. Um, of a kind, She's kind of a man-hater, right? Um, uh, there's, there's a lot. And again, like, as I, I, I teach her to my undergraduates at, at Fleckler College and you know, I always say I'm not saying there's nothing to critique here. I'm not saying that she's the seal of the feminist prophets at all, right? But what I'm saying is that our critiques of her should be smarter, <laughs> you know. Um, and and you know we we shouldn't um, dismiss her as as some some caricature.
1: Yeah. Right? What I, what I got what I got from the book is that the the actors at either end of this binary were much closer to each other than they were to to the people that they were, they were
0: helping. I try, I try to, I try to make this point in the introduction, right? Mm. There's a tendency because the catfight narrative to fixate on the divides and the differences, um, between feminists at this time, but they shared a lot in common, right? They were all lesbian feminists, not all of them, but a lot of them were lesbian feminists. And they were coming out of that kind of political tradition of, you know, they, they were, uh, I I think I mentioned earlier, right, they were, they all sort of adopted a kind of social constructivist uh, view of sexuality, Um, you know, so yeah, there were were a lot of things that kind of united the parties, the feminist parties during the sex wars, and I think it's important not to lose sight of that.
1: Yeah, and I mean, because like, for me, like, you know, as someone who has a sex work in history, that comes from a very marginalized background. What I really and, and don't get me wrong, you know, I just warmed to her. I'm still no great fan, right? for anyone listening, yeah, um, I, what the book allowed was a more nuanced uh, sort of like uh, discussion, yeah. And I think that's so important, especially around debates around sex, sex work, is that we we allow ourselves to become so binary, and yeah. it's really damaging to the field. Yeah, we need to be born. and it's it, and it's partially this is partially why I invited you to come and talk because. You know, we, we need, you know, sort of people that would not nat- maybe naturally be allies need to be talking because we, 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 you know, we do have more in common than we have, you know, not in common. So bearing in mind that the sort of like um, the work that I, pers- I see your book contributing to on my imaginary bookshelf you're very close to Bernstein and below so, yeah because you're making us think about what's been going on in the well and it works alphabetically too because I'm yeah. graceful yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> uh, what contribution does your work make to the debate around carceral feminism
0: oh, as I kind of mentioned earlier I think my intervention is to say liberalism and those core liberal ideas are central to the the development of carceral feminism. That that a feminism that is uh, uh, locked within the the ambit of these core liberal ideals will inevitably be a carceral feminism. Because I argue that feminism by definition wants to address sexual injustice and the tools that liberalism provides are carceral tools, right? Um, so unless feminists abandon that kind of core commitment to contesting structures of sexual oppression and contesting sexual injustice, um, then then those those feminists are going to resort to carceral remedies because that's all that the liberal state provides. Um, so yeah, that that's really my contribution. Is I try to I because as I mentioned, you know, Bernstein is one of these people. Um, they want to attribute the carceral turn in feminism to these kind of problematic strategic alliances that various feminists made with conservatives.
1: Uh Um,
0: And again, that's a factor too, right? It's not like that isn't happening, you know? Um, And Bernstein has the receipts, right? She does a great job of showing like this person who used to be kind of active in radical feminist politics is now involved with the Hudson Foundation or whatever, you know? Um, So there's there are tracks there. Um, but I think that, um, liberalism also has a a role to play in this causal story of what's driving the carceral turn in feminism. And I worry, right, that if, that if we don't recognize this, if we don't appreciate this, if we don't see how these kind of liberal commitments, um, really limit feminists and then channel them into these carceral directions that we're not we're not going to be able to stop that, right? That that, that dynamic is going to continue to operate. Um, so this is maybe the political theorist in me, right? Saying like, let's step back and call into question these liberal assumptions that maybe we take as just sort of natural, inevitable features of the political world. And let's try to think about how we might contest Sexual injustice and sexual oppression in alternative ways yeah. that might actually offend those core liberal principles, um, but that would uh, not force us into these carceral remedies.
1: I mean, and it's and it's so important. Uh, you know, like my Twitter feed at the moment is full of um, stuff about a police raid on a on um, on a working flat, a brothel of some description in um, in North London, and you know this sort of the uh, the rhetoric around it is like these women don't always know they're trafficked, they don't always know they're being <laughs> abused, <laughs> but we do. So yes, yeah. yeah, so it is a really important because the 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 damage that is done by the state is so it in a bid to help. Yeah, you know, is 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 can be you know really 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 dangerous. Um. So, so what do you hope to achieve with this book? My final question: <laughs> Who do you see reading this book? Well, um, you know, I'm I'm a
0: political theorist, so obviously I hope feminist political theorists will be interested in it. But I also think that, and you know, that you took an interest in my book and invited me on your podcast. I think is evidence of this. I also think there's a kind of broader audience, right, um, in people who are just generally, in a broader interdisciplinary sense, interested in the politics of sex and sexuality, interested in debates over pornography and over debates of prostitution. Um, interested in this concept of carceral feminism and, you know, formulating alternatives to it. Um, I also think, and, uh, you know, this is maybe a naive hope on my part, but that there just be interest amongst a general readership, because I do think that um, better understanding the history of the sex wars will help just normal, non-academic people make sense of all that's swirling around them um, with regard to the politics of sex and sexuality constantly, right? Like if you, if you saw, you know, like I mentioned earlier, like in the pages of the national review, the same kind of stuff that you saw, like Margaret Atwood saying about me too, and were confused, like my book is going to help you understand why that's happening, right? Yeah. Um, if you saw, you know, the kind of reaction to the Weinstein conviction, where you have like, you know, feminists doing victory laps uh, because a rapist got sent to prison and thought, is that really the goal? <laughs> like, is that is that all there is? <laughs> you know? um, like, you know, then, then read this book, because I, I think that it's going to help you first understand how that came to be, um, and also give you some ammunition to think new and a fresh and more broadly about what feminist victory might mean right yeah. convicting harvey weinstein <laughs> it's important right but that that is not the be all end all of low
1: hanging fruit <laughs> yeah <laughs> we've got to work harder and and i think for me i think what your book has really done for me is also as well it's bought it's brought, into, you know, I'm, you know, I'm, I've put the place of feminism aside for my own thesis, but you know, I'm feminist informed, you know, I'm a PhD researcher, you know, but you brought people into the debate that, you know, who I was not aware that was in the debate. The, your section about uh, black and third world feminists and the debate and the contribution that they, that they make to the debate is 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 really really important. I feel. I'm really nuanced, and I learned a lot from that. So, oh, good. that's the, that's the part
0: of the book I'm most proud of. There's no doubt.
1: And rightly um, so. Rightly so. That you know, you saved the best till last. You really did, and I really enjoyed that. I really sort of like, I got a lot from that. So, last chance here for shameless plugging. Who are you? Who's what's your book? When's it coming out? And who's publishing? Sure.
0: It? So, my name is Lorna Bracewell. I'm an assistant professor of political science at Flagler College. My book is called Why We Lost the Sex Wars, Sexual Freedom in the Me Too Era, and it is published by the University of Minnesota Press. You can go buy it right now.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And we'll put put a, a link on the blurb that attaches it. Thank you so much, Laura. That was amazing.